Hello there, I'm Beth Kempton and this is the Freedom Seeker Chronicles. I created this podcast as a place to explore some of life's big questions and the smaller details that lead us towards happier, more fulfilled lives. I love nothing more than a thought-provoking conversation with a fascinating person who's living in accordance with what matters most to them. And I'm delighted to share those conversations with you. As for me, I'm the founder of Do What You Love, which helps people find what lights them up and pursue that in work, business and life. You can find out more at dowhatyoulovefullife.com. I'm also author of two books. Freedom Seeker is a book about making the most of life and flying free, and that's out now. And then Wabi Sabi, Japanese wisdom for a perfectly imperfect life. That's available for pre-order from our friends at Amazon and all good independent bookshops. I wrote both of them for you. And so, are you ready? Let's dive in. When Karen Dark was 10 years old, she decided she would climb all 3,000 feet of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. And she did so two and a half decades later, even though she's been in a wheelchair since a rock climber accident at the age of 21. She spent five days hoisting herself up the rock face and spent the nights on ledges in the cliff. This is just one example of extraordinary bravery and perseverance by Karen, who became Paralympic champion in hand cycling at the Rio 2016 Paralympic Games. Polar explorer Serena Fiennes has said Karen's captivating story shines a bright light on the meaning of challenge and on the limitless capabilities of the human spirit. Karen says, life has taught me the importance of holding tight to belief and never ever giving up. I've invited her onto the show to share more about her amazing attitude to life and what we can all learn from her about resilience, perseverance and possibility. Karen, welcome. Hi. <laughs> Hello. It's very rare that I start a conversation completely lost for words, but really the more I looked into you preparing for this podcast, the more I was just blown away about one thing after another that you've done. I mean, you've pushed yourself to your physical limits, your mental limits, and you just keep on going. Can you tell us where it all began and, and how you've managed to develop this incredible capacity for challenge and overcoming obstacles? Um, I'm not, I'm not really, sh- it's, it's kind of hard to define where I suppose one's character comes from. I think I've always been, I've always been attracted to challenge for some reason before I was paralyzed as well as after. Um, for example, the first time I went to the Alps as a young person to climb, I saw the Matterhorn and I just wanted to climb it. And I think some people spend years and years planning it and, pay guides to take them up and maybe you know 10 years after they started training for it and I ended up climbing that summer with a couple of friends using a postcard to find the way and in some ways I think I'm kind of foolish and in some ways I think naivety is a great thing because you end up doing things that you would never do if you perhaps had a bit more knowledge or wisdom or information or something but um yeah I guess becoming paralyzed a lot of people ask me if that's made me more I don't know if more not more resilient it's not the right word but if it's made me kind of want to prove something to myself or to other people or if it's pushed me to to try even harder than before and of course I don't know the answer I'll never know but yeah it's kind of it requires me to sometimes kind of really examine where why I'm doing what I'm doing and where it's coming from and and that's a question I've been examining more than ever in the last year or so, actually, since the Rio Paralympics, because I suppose that was the ultimate experience I've had in 
starting to believe something was possible on a very deep level, even though I wasn't necessarily the strongest athlete there at all that day. There was at least one of four of us that could have won that race, I think. But I, somehow I'd created that reality for myself. I was, I was, I wanted to win that race and I planned that for two years before and everything kind of channeled towards that. But after it, I was really broken. I kind of had burnout. And I think since then, I've been asking a lot of questions about, you know, what, what is driving me and why do I keep going? And is it the right thing? And what's it all about? And I've got some answers, but it's a journey. (laughs) Oh my goodness. There's so many things I want to ask you about in what you've just said there, but if we can go back to when you were 21 and you had the accident, I mean, I know, um, these things, you you probably get asked about these turning points so often over and over. Um, but it is fascinating to me that that happened at a time when any young person is trying to choose their direction in life and you know at 21 um you know the world's your oyster and um you you if you've got the right support you know you can really go out there and and do anything you want did you have particular plans at that time that um got changed in a certain way can can you remember how you moved into the next phase of your life yeah I mean at at 21 I was really a, a huge outdoor lover so I spent my all my free time and leisure time in the mountains, a mixture of walking and running and climbing and cycling. Um, And my profession was a geologist. So I was doing a doctorate in geology. So actually a week after I had my accident, I was due to fly out to Bolivia, to the Andes, to begin my first field season out there, collecting rock samples and then hopefully climbing in the the Andes. So clearly plans changed a little bit. (laughs) And um, I couldn't do that anymore, but I did. I did carry on with my with my geology studies, and I did go to Bolivia a year later, and had to change the scope of what I was studying because I couldn't do what I planned to do just because I couldn't walk into the mountains anymore. But yeah, I mean, your whole life changes direction, and it's very easy. I I discovered very early on that it's very easy. It felt very easy to think about all the things that I couldn't do anymore. I never really felt sorry for myself. I never had a poor me kind of attitude, I must say. I've never really felt that. I never felt a huge amount of anger either. It could be that I've just suppressed it all for years. I don't know. (laughs) But um, what I felt more than anything was this kind of looking back. And I suppose it's like grieving for somebody that you've lost. And in a way, you have lost somebody. You've lost yourself. You're starting completely again with a whole new reality. You You don't know where you are in that reality, trying to redefine how you feel about yourself, your life, where your life's going, everything. It was literally like being born again, I would say. Um, And yeah, I was lucky because I had fantastic friends and support and I think that's what kept me going. And I suppose the advantage of being 21 is that you haven't got stuck in your ways, if you know what I mean, and you haven't necessarily got a a really defined life already. And I I was young enough to have a lot of friends and be in in a kind of university environment where there were lots of things happening and lots of people willing to help so in many ways that set me up quite well to have a great environment to go back to and lots of positive things happening around me what was your first goal that you set yourself do you remember um well i mean the very incremental my first goal was being able to sit up in bed (laughs) because i don't have abdominal muscles so even figuring out how to sit up in my bed seemed impossible so that was the first goal (laughs) i mean it's I, I'm listen, I'm sitting here listening to you and then having like when I think about that that you have been at the top of El Capitan, it's just unbelievable. Like how what kind of preparation do you have to do 
mentally to to and and physically i mean that it's serious work for your upper body right how how do you prepare for that i mean physically i've i've always kept fit or as fit as i can so i've never i don't feel like i physically ever had a problem with being being fit enough for something um strength maybe could always be better but yeah aerobically i'm i've got a really good base of being active my whole life so that side of things isn't too too difficult but mentally el capitan was a huge journey i i didn't know how i would feel about going back to climbing i discovered i was scared of heights <laughs> i didn't used to be but i guess all the fear that was within my body and locked in my cells after the memory of falling off a cliff and also losing an extremely close friend in an accident not long after mine um made me really sort of afraid and i had to really work with that but i realized that when i was on the cliff i suppose it was practice in action i realized that the mind is very malleable and just like you can be playing a horror film and you turn it off because you don't like it and you put a comedy on instead you can do exactly the same with your your mind and your thoughts so i just had this very experiential um time on the cliff of, of playing with my thoughts trying to calm myself down physically be in a good place so i could carry on and by by playing with my mental processes i suppose just incredible do you remember what you're thinking when you're at the top I was very relieved when we got to the top <laughs> and we failed the first time. We, we climbed for three days and then dropped all our food and came back down. Um, we had we had to come down because we didn't we, we knew we couldn't survive then for the rest of the trip. So I was so happy to get to the ground and I, I cried because I was so happy to be back. And um, yeah, my climbing partner was like, we should just go on the beach holiday. Let's forget climbing it. And after a few hours, I suddenly realized that I couldn't just walk away and I needed to go back. But and we need to do it differently, think it through and try and I used to try and change the attitude in my head and uh, try and appreciate. I, I think earlier I started to say it's easy to focus on what we can't do or what we haven't got. And I think in those very early days of being paralyzed, I learned to try and focus on what we can do and what we have got. It's, it's easy to to forget how lucky most of us are and appreciate what we have in life. So inspiring. Tell us about the Olympics, because the Olympics is an experience that the vast majority of the world knows about but never gets to experience firsthand, right? To be part of that incredible thing. I know many, many years ago, I was interpreter at the Nagano Winter Olympics and it's just the most special thing to be part of. But obviously I was under a very different kind of pressure to the athletes, many of whom have been working for years and years towards that kind of major life goal. What was it actually like for you when you got there and, and how to be part of it? Um, well, I've been to two Olympics, so London and Rio. And before I go any further, I should say that probably people listening, it, I know it's easy to think, oh, that's for, some, that's for somebody else. That's not something I could ever do. But I thought the same. Like literally in 2008, I'd done two races in my life and I come last in them both on my handbike. So when I had the idea of trying to get to London Paralympics, I thought I'd lost, I thought it was crazy. Like I really thought I haven't got what it takes. I'm just an amateur who am I to think I could get to the Olympics? So my goal was just to get there. And then I realized that, yeah, with regular training, with a coach, by doing things really smartly instead of doing what I'd always done. So I had to not go cycling for hours anymore. I had to do kind of, you know, train hard for do specific things. Then gradually I got fitter and I realized it was potentially a possibility to get there. So London for me, it was all a massive experiment. I was so excited about the possibility of just even getting to one. And when I realized it was starting to become a reality, I guess I just couldn't believe it. So 
when I got there and I, I was selected and got to participate in Olympics in my own country, it was the most incredible experience. And then winning a silver medal was mind blowing. I didn't expect to. And I mean, it was it was amazing. And having friends and family there as well, it was very, very special. Rio was a very different experience. I think that I had quite a lot of personal trauma, I would say, in the, uh, in the couple of years after London. Um, sort of physical stuff but also emotionally in my life some things changed and I found it very difficult so I and then I think I channeled all of that into just into thinking okay I'm trained I'm going to train really hard and I'm going to try and get to Rio and I'll, I'll try and win a gold medal so um, those two years before Rio was so intense and I gave everything and by the time I got, got there as I say I was a little, a little bit broken when I got there and certainly very broken by the time it was all over so if I'm honest I didn't actually enjoy Rio. My race was next to last day. Sounds amazing. It's Brazil, you have this amazing time in this inspiring environment, but actually when you're a competitor and it's, there's a lot of pressure on you and it's your job, it felt quite stressful. And I was in the Olympic Village just lying in my room, injured actually, I had a shoulder injury for the two weeks before my race. And I just had to kind of pull out on race day and hope for the best. And uh, yeah, had one day to enjoy Rio with my family afterwards. So if I'm honest, Rio was quite stressful. And although I did win the gold medal, it's, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have like super happy memories of Rio. <laughs> wow. And I, I mean, the one thing about that is that no one can ever, you know, they can't take that away from you, can they? I mean, that's, it's, it was something that you set out to do and you've achieved it. And that's amazing. But I can see how if you just, you're working up and up and up to this peak moment, and then it's gone and there's you kind of have to come back down to earth don't you i mean you can't live your life in that peak state of preparation and training and and everything focused no. on that for, forever and what i mean what kind of tools have you used to to get past that um that time of real pressure and try and get into you know yeah. more of an everyday flow so I guess anticipating is a good start because like you say, you can't, you can't peak for a huge event like that and then expect to carry on. There's always going to be some, you know, a, a different phase after it. And actually sometimes I really like that phase. I don't mean necessarily after an Olympics, but after you've done something quite big that you've been working towards, it's almost like a time to recover, recuperate, to look back, to, to take stock, to learn. Uh, for me, it's really important to learn from my experiences and it's quite nice to have the space and time to do that. So that in itself is something I quite often look forward to. So I think a couple of strategies I use is one to plan in time to be somewhere special to recover. So Mallorca is my default place where I'm really relaxed and I can really enjoy being here and being myself and having space and time and peace. So I think certainly after Rio, I came here for some recovery time on my own. And the other thing I quite often do is plan something else to look forward to. So in the December of the year after Rio, I'd planned the previous Christmas with um, a couple of good friends to go to South America on a, a journey, which was fun. It was in the wilderness. It was a challenge. We were doing a bike ride still, but probably not most what not what most people call a holiday, but it's kind of my idea of a holiday. So yeah, we cycled like 1,500 kilometers through Patagonia camping, but wow. for me that's that's that is kind of fun and recuperation and so on so yeah having something else to look forward to i find really helps as well um well, like you say as well as having the space what i found really exhausting and, and this isn't meant to be um i don't mean to sound ungrateful but 
obviously when you've been to an Olympics, you come home and everybody is excited and wants to celebrate with you and for you. And so there's lots of events. And after London, I joined in a lot of those events and I went to schools and I showed my medal and I did all this stuff. Um, but actually after Rio, I couldn't, I couldn't do it because I was too exhausted. I didn't go to anything. And I think, although I felt some, in a way I feel bad because it, part of it is about sharing it with other people. It's about helping to inspire young people to, you know, follow their dreams and aspirations. But I really had to learn to manage my personal energy, I suppose. It's very easy just to say yes to everything and, and to keep giving out. And actually, if you've been to a different school or a different event every day or twice a day, and everyone wants a selfie with you in the medal, it's absolutely draining mm. after a while. So, you know, in, in doses, if it's spaced well, it's it's energizing and, and it's and, and it's great and it's amazing. And you see the you know, kids' faces and it's it's the most special thing. But yeah, to do too much of that is really, really hard, I think. Well, you're inspiring people in a different way by, you know, sharing with, with people like me. I mean, there's, there's people who listen to this and I think um, what you said there has massive... Um, lessons for people for entrepreneurs and for creative people who spend a ton of time and energy maybe writing a book or you know working towards an exhibition or launching something in their business and the tendency is just to finish and go to the next thing and we so often don't build in that recovery time and making it not just a time to then catch up on admin and stuff but actually properly recover and turn it into something that you look forward to i think it's a really really great lesson and managing your personal energy whatever you're doing is just is huge because you can't in over the long term you can't give what you want to give if you're Mm -mm. completely exhausted can you no and my big thing right now is about doing things sustainably so people keep saying to me are you going to tokyo and actually i don't know the answer because what i've decided is I love my sport. I love to train. I don't love competition that much, but I love to train. And I don't really want to give that up. But at the same time, I have to do it in a way which is more balanced and sustainable and not quite so intense. And I do believe sometimes that less is more, that if we try and do too much, then we don't do it as well or we lose the quality of what we're doing. And and, and, and equally with training for an Olympics, you can do too much and not really do it very well. So if I can find a way to do it more sustainably where my personal energy is much more balanced and I can, you know, be here for people and myself in the long term, then I'd love it if I can get to Tokyo. But if if I try that and it doesn't work, then I'm okay to, to not get there. <laughs> Maybe you could get there slowly over several years going through Asia or something like that. I'm sure you'll find a way <laughs> to get to Tokyo even if it's not in 2020. Oh, so- I'll, I'll, I'll be there in one shape or form. But yeah, whether I'm there as a competitor depends whether this uh, doing things more sustainably is sustain- is, is uh, it works, but I hope, I hope so. <laughs> So what's keeping you busy at the moment? Um, you you always have some kind of challenge on the go. What is it right now? Well, <laughs> there's a couple of projects on the go right now. Um, I guess one of the things I realised after a couple of Olympic cycles is that I'd lost my connection with adventure a little bit because it's quite hard in a racing and training programme to make space for some special adventures. And that's something that I really love to do. And those are usually, you know, with good friends or sometimes complete strangers, but in exciting wilderness places. So I have a project called Quest 79, which for me personally is about doing journeys on seven continents and nine rides, so two Paralympics and a, a journey on each continent. And I'm trying to encourage other people to take on their own quest 79 so 
that could be anything that's that's meaningful to them. It could be taking 79 steps. It could be it could be running 79 kilometers. It, it doesn't have to be physical. Um, someone told me they want to play their game for 79 hours and someone else told me they were going to give up coke for 79 days and you know there's all sorts of different forms that it seems to be taking for people but 79 happens to be the atomic number of gold it happens to be the the, the number of the medal that I won for Britain in Rio it was the 79th medal and it just it's just a number that keeps cropping up for me so eventually I got quite interested in 79 and um, the whole project has developed around that so trying to raise £79,000 for the Spinal Injuries Association in the process. So, yeah, that's a big project. My next journey will be in Australia in April and then um, following a river called the Murray River, which is the longest river in Australia. And it's really a challenged river. The ecosystem is really fragile and the, the all the irrigation that the Australians are taking from the river for crops and, and to grow food for the country, basically is drying the, the river basin up and it's really not sustainable. So I'm, I want to kind of study the river as a metaphor for my own journey with sport when I'm there. And then in the autumn, we'll be uh, cycling down the length of the Ganges in India. Um, and different people coming with me on these journeys, mainly people who've never ever done anything like this before. So one friend hadn't even ridden a bike since she was a kid until last year. And now her and her partner are coming on the journey um, with me. So it's exciting. Wow. Um, yeah, and then alongside that, I'm, I've am i surprisingly been selected for Scotland for the Commonwealth Games in Australia at the start of April. So I'm not in cycling, it's actually in triathlon. So I'm wow. trying to learn to swim and run a little bit better than I can right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. The The thing that strikes me is that you you seem to think so big in terms of what's possible, in terms of you know your adventures you're talking about the ganges and australia and kind of going far and wide and having kind of a connection to each challenge some kind of story with it and it, that i think that's so inspiring because i think we can really limit ourselves with what we think is possible um and you seem to just decide and go for it and then figure out if it's possible which is really refreshing yeah i don't know where that comes from i'm i know a lot of people listen and probably think oh well I could never do that or that's not for me or she must have lots of money and none of those things are true um actually often being away on a journey it's cheaper than being at home you live on porridge and you're camping in the wild so after the flight ticket most of these adventures don't tend to cost very much um yeah and you're right I suppose I don't I, when I have an idea it seems it usually seems quite like nonsense because it seems a bit impossible but then I'm kind of attracted to that. And then I'm I'm not this unendingly positive person who just believes it's always possible. Like most of my trips, a few weeks before, I've wondered about pulling out because I've been so scared or I've wondered whether I'm being stupid or whether it's actually doable or not. But I just basically end up writing a list of all my fears and all the things that I'm worried about. And then I try and do one thing about each of them to make me feel a little bit better. So... Yeah, like skiing across the Greenland ice cap. I was so worried about getting hypothermia, but I, my friends and I managed to get people to make special clothes for me and special boots to keep my feet warm and a special toilet that I could use, like a potty to use in the snow. And eventually I thought, okay, well, probably this is this could work. So I guess I should go and try it. And yeah, I usually think, well, what's the worst that could happen? And maybe I'm being a little bit naive because possibly some quite bad things could happen, but... <laughs> Usually they don't. And uh, I think if you kind of hold on to ideas and you 
you just try hard and solve the problems and the worries and have good friends and support to do things with, then it's, I'm amazed at what is possible, really. I, I mean, I love that approach to tackling your fears and literally saying what's, what small practical things can you do because any kind of action in the face of fear can really help, can't it? So do you feel like you're doing something about it and, and actually solving something that then, you know, it's no longer a consideration because you've you know, fixed what what could have caused that. Um, that's a really smart way of dealing with it so that you're not spending your time thinking about the thing that might never have, might never happen and actually doing something about it. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't, I think I don't really believe in positive thinking. And I don't mean that in a, clearly I believe in positivity, but I think negative thoughts are also really helpful. Like we're humans, so we have fears and we have worries and anxieties. And if we can tackle those rather than just try and ignore them, because if we just try and ignore them, then they're still there. There's, they're just, we've just suppressed them or hidden them. So I believe in kind of tackling them. And I suppose rather than positive thinking, maybe I'd call it positive being. It's more like being aware of our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors and then being real with them and thinking, okay, what am I really thinking and feeling? And now what can I do with that to hopefully make a success of this? And that for me works better than maybe what you might just call forced positive thinking. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's, it's so true to life and and real that's the important thing when we met we were both guests on a bbc radio show and i remember we were talking about finding freedom in amongst all our responsibilities and obligations how are you getting on with that <laughs> well you know what i think i've probably to a certain degree devolved quite a lot of responsibility and obligations so i mean yeah i don't have children and i don't have a nine-to-five job so um Certainly the nine to five job thing I chose for myself a long time ago, I realized what kind of person I was and that freedom was quite, was very important to me and flexibility. And I chose a life that would be different from that. I was not sure it was possible, but I've, you know, once someone once said to me, what in your wildest dreams, what would your life be like? And it's like, I'd be having adventures and I'd be riding my bike and I'd somehow make a living out of it. And that's come true and it works. And very happy and privileged so I feel like I've got an awful amount of freedom and things to be happy for yeah if I'd met the right person at the right time I might have children and clearly I'd have different responsibilities then and that might come with some limitations but um I guess there always there's always a choice as to how we limit ourselves or if we do have certain parameters in life that we have to stick to which we all do to a degree then yeah you I usually push the boundaries and find where the freedom and flexibility can be within that to maintain some happiness <laughs> I love that we do always have a choice so to circle back to the beginning you were saying about after this massive high of, of Rio you're kind of grappling with not so much ne what's next but kind of w what to put, put your heart into and you know why the, the big questions um what to focus on I guess or um it sounds like some kind of life planning without necessarily knowing what you want to plan How, what are what are you asking yourself now yeah, I mean, I suppose everyone says, for example, after a big event that you, you know, you reach a point where you're questioning what next. And certainly there's lots of stuff about Olympic athletes basically getting absolutely messed up after, you know, after Olympic experiences, successful or not successful. And uh, lots of people seem to become addicts of one thing or another, be it alcohol or drugs or, you know, just get or, or just have some mental health problems. So I, I'm fortunate I've not 
gone down those routes. But certainly after Rio, I was left asking questions. I suppose I'd reached the ultimate goal. I'd won a gold medal. That's what I've been working for for so long. Where to next? You know, would I carry on? Did I want to carry on? What was my motivation? What's driving me? What else is important in life? So I've been asking all those questions and that's been quite a journey for the last year or so. And I guess I've reached a point where I've realized that I do what I do because I love it. So I've never been motivated by doing it to win medals. I've been motivated by doing it to learn and to get to ride my bike. So on one level, why would I give it up? Um, As I said, at the same time, I thought I can't sustain this level of intensity for another four years. I need to look at what's what's possible. So I think what I've realized is that possibly part of my drive is that I I think I to some degree resist my vulnerability. So being in a wheelchair and all the things that are associated with it, or being paralyzed from the chest down and all the things that are associated with it, I have to admit to myself that I am more vulnerable, but it's not something I've ever really been able to admit. I think I've just cracked on as if I'm the same as everybody else and I never want to think oh I'm I'm weaker or I'm different or poor me or anything like that so that's I think what's part of what's driven me to do all these things which even when I look back I think they're quite incredible um but I've had so many near misses and so many things especially in the last couple of years I've had a couple of major operations on a huge kind of abscess infection that was inside of me it was 20 centimeters big I didn't even know I had it so I've I've nearly died a number of times in the last few years. And I think it's really made me face my own vulnerability and have to realize that I need to accept that rather than resist it. And that doesn't mean doing nothing and it doesn't mean stopping what I'm doing. But I think it means, you know, not being scared of it and just giving myself a little bit more time and space to to recover and look after myself and and just respect myself a little bit more, I think. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. I'm clearly now I'm still training and I've got exciting ideas for the future I'm really passionate about helping people become I guess you know happier and better better in themselves in in the world in life and I've I've lacked confidence that I can help people do that which is kind of crazy because I really should be able to do that and I believe I can do that so I'm really excited about working with people coaching them helping them with their health and well-being and um, that's something that I'm excited about doing more of. So quite where the transition happens and how the balance works out between sport and adventure and doing all of that, I don't know, but that's something I've become really clear about. And I think with my own journey of with disability, with challenges, with, with health problems and all the kind of highs and lows I've had through life, um, I've learned so much and it's given me quite a lot of awareness of the, you know some of the things we need to really consider and be mindful of. Oh my goodness, you absolutely can. You already are helping people to, to just live the best version of their life that they can just by the way that you're living yours. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to talk to you today. Thank you so much, Karen. And good Thank luck with so it all. Thank you for having me on the program. Thank you. So that's all for today. I hope you are as inspired as I am. Wow, that was amazing. You've been listening to me, Beth Kempton, in conversation with Karen Dark. You can find out more about Karen and all her challenges on her website, karendark, with an E, dot com, and more about me at bethkempton.com. I'll be back soon with more inspiring stories. Be sure to subscribe to the Freedom Seeker Chronicles so you don't miss a single one.